0: Sketches from Scripture Presents After God's Own Heart A teaching series from the book of Samuel At the end of the book of Judges, the author writes, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel was a nation, but not a kingdom. The spiritual leaders were corrupt and aloof and the nation wandered far from God. Thanks to the desperate prayer of a woman named Hannah, her son, the prophet Samuel, became the leader, priest, and judge of Israel, and God called him to anoint a king, one who believed, acted, and ruled after God's own heart. Will a king unify an adulterous nation and bring them back to the Lord? This is the story of the book of Samuel. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com, find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. 1 Samuel, beginning in chapter four, verse two, where we left off and going on through the beginning of chapter seven. Quick review. Begin with Hannah, barren, desiring a child, praying fervently to the Lord. God grants her request and gives her a son. She, in her prayer, says to God, essentially, if you give me a son, I'll give him to you. And God does and she does. And the son is named Samuel, and he's given over to service at the tabernacle, which is located in Shiloh. The priest of Israel at this time is named Eli, and he has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas are awful, terrible priests, awful, terrible people. They are stealing food from the people that come to the tabernacle. They're stealing food off of the altar, so they're stealing food from God. They are uh sleeping with women at the entrance to the tabernacle. They're using their their fame and their position in the nation to um do whatever they want and to do whatever they uh feel is right in their own eyes and Eli, their father does very little to stop it. so we've already seen just like in Genesis the themes of light darkness sight and and blindness. And uh, Israel finds itself in a time of blindness. Uh, We've seen the curse against Eli and his sons, that Eli's sons are going to die in the same day. That's what the man of God tells Eli. Tuesday night, we saw where the Lord speaks to Samuel, young Samuel. And the Lord tells Samuel, tell Eli his sons will die in the same day. And uh, Samuel faithfully shares that with Eli. So we have all this foreshadowing that's happened in these first few chapters. If you remember from storytelling in some of the earlier lessons that we've done, you've got three-act structure. So you've got act one is the setup. Then that whole world that you've just set up gets turned upside down. And then you spend the next part of the story trying to write what has gone wrong. And then the act three is the climactic event where that takes place. It's exactly what we're going to see in this story, the book of Samuel. I call it the book of Samuel because this is one story. We have a first Samuel and a second Samuel. It's not a story and a sequel. It is because the story was originally broken up onto two scrolls because you can only fit so much on a standard scroll. And so this is how it was stored in synagogues. This is how it was stored in libraries and things at the time. So... um, first uh, Samuel and second Samuel really all go together and are the book of Samuel or the story of Samuel. And so I'm, we're going to jump right in and read the text and then I'm going to make some notes. I'm going to show you some pictures tonight and uh, we'll come back and I'll have some things to say um, about the the story that we have here. Let's get on to the Bible verses and we'll read so I'm reading from the English standard Version First Samuel chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. That sentence belongs with, uh, at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 3. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. By the way, that's not just a descriptive sentence. That is the the full name of the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. So when you see that whole phrase, you you are seeing full dignity being given to the Ark. And right now, where's the Ark? It's in the tabernacle in Shiloh. It's where it belongs. And so full dignity is given to it. You see its full name, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Notice now you have a shorter name. This is already giving you some foreshadowing into how Hophni and Phinehas view this Ark of the Covenant. Verse 5, as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Covenant, uh, that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a god has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Uh, These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. So you notice they're saying God, and you notice here it's not capitalized on the screen. They're using the word gods. Basically, the Philistines are saying, whatever their deity is, whatever gods they worship, uh, the ones that brought them out of Egypt and did all the plagues, that is now coming after us. And so you can see that they don't really have a, an understanding of Israel's monotheism, which again highlights how um, how different, how unique a monotheism was in the world. It's, uh, it, Nation of Israel was the only monotheistic culture, really, for the most part. And so they're just describing it as they understand it. And the scripture is recording that here. Verse nine, take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. Notice the short name there, because no dignity was being shown to the Ark. It was being used for a purpose for which it was never intended. And now it has fallen into enemy hands. The Ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not not see. Uh, I think the Christian Standard Bible says that his eyes could not move because he was blind. Remember those themes of sight and blindness. Here you have the leader of Israel, Eli. He's the priest. He's the judge, and um, he's blind. He's uh, Israel's literally being led in darkness by the blind. And the man, uh, picking up verse sixteen, and the man said to Eli, "I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today." And he said, "How did it go, my son?" He who brought the news answered and said, "Israel has fled before the Philistines." And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. So we're told here not only is he blind, but he's also fat, which is just indicating how much he's lived off of uh, the sacrifices of the Lord and uh, probably stolen from the people and that sort of thing. Now, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. So if you'll recall what the Lord told Samuel to tell Eli, he, he, he told Samuel, tell Eli his family will be priests no longer. They will be in charge no longer. And yet here we have a descendant that is uh, about to be born, right? So um, <clears throat> when, she, hurt, when she, she was about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the Ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending, uh, the women attending her said to her, do not be afraid for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel. And uh, again, I just have to point out here, glory, what does that mean? What means you know, fame or splendor, renown, um, but it's very closely associated with the idea of light. So when you talk about the glory of the Lord, the, 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 um, the splendor of the Lord, you're talking about a, a great light. There's always accompanied by this great light. And what she's really saying is the light has gone out in Israel. Again, going back to this theme all the way from Genesis 1.1. Of light and darkness. The glory has departed from Israel. And she names her child that as she is dying. The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father in law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. So, Ebenezer is one of the cities of the Israelites. Ashdod is one of the settlements of the Philistines. This is, would be down to the southwest of um, getting, uh, like going down the Mediterranean coast down towards Egypt. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Dagon is one of their gods, one of their idol gods. It's a god of fertility, as many of the gods are. In this time and culture. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. Notice the symbolism here, that this idol is almost bowing in worship to the Ark, uh, certainly in uh, subservience, doing some kind of obeisance if it were a person bowing before the Ark. And so they put the ark in with this god, they go away. When they come back the next morning, Dagon's down on his face in front of the ark. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. So now the thinking, seeing, speaking part of the god, of course, again, it's a a man-made god, but the head, what would be the speaking, thinking part of the god, has been broken off, and the hands have been broken off. What would be the the working, serving part of the god? Those have also been broken off. Lots of symbolism here, and they're left on the threshold, in other words, the doorway to the this uh, temple area, as if to say, get out of here. Only the trunk, only the torso of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. Notice that word hand after the hands of Dagon were just broken. Now the hand of the Lord is heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Okay, this word tumors is a euphemism. Um... A lot of translators think the actual meaning is hemorrhoid. Um, Some other reading that I read, uh, we'll see in a little bit that there apparently is also uh, mice or rats, some kind of rodents that also appear to come along at the same time as these tumors, quote. And so it may be something like the bubonic plague where you have boils. The word here for tumors means um, uh, mound or swelling or something like that. And so, um, it's kind of hard to, to translate, but, uh, it, b- because Dagon was a fertility god, and because the rodents are attacking the crops and the tumors are attacking, afflicting the people, it's quite possible that this might have even been some sort of, um, genital affliction. Okay. So remember these Old Testament texts in particular, the Bible is much more raw about life then sometimes we want to talk about. And some, some of these things are difficult to read in public or difficult to read in front of other people, but they tell us what happened. What would be the purpose of doing that? Why might God afflict them in this way? First of all, it gets at the source of their God. So Dagon is a fertility God and afflicting them in either their genitals or in their ability to sit down in, in their most intimate areas. A God is saying, I can I can get to, to the most secret Places of you, and he does that in a very physical way. And by attacking the um, crops, also he's attacking this idea of uh, fertility and, and being a fertile land. And so, this is not just a punishment, but it is God saying, "I'm the one who controls fertility, not this Dagon. Dagon has so little power; I can break, I can make him bow down to me, and then break off his head and his hands." So, there's a lot of meaning packed into these actions. And notice the scripture is not telling you about all the meaning. It's just telling you what happens. Uh, Just like a good screenplay shows you what you can see and what you can hear. And uh, it involves us in the story so that we have to really search for that meaning. And when we do, we become intertwined with the story. So um, we go on from uh, talking about the tumors. Uh, We'll continue to use the word tumors, but just realize that that is probably a much more uh, sensitive, awful uh, thing that is happening. Let's pick up in verse seven. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, <laughs> they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines or all the elders, all the leaders, all the kings and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So Gath is another Philistine city, uh, which is, I believe, where uh, Goliath is from, which we'll uh, read about him later. So they brought the ark of the God, uh, uh, they brought the ark of the God of Israel there to Gath. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. Again, notice it's only affecting the men, according to this text, if we read it literally. And so again, that would indicate that this this might be something having to do with fertility. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the Ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us, the ark of the God of Israel, to kill us and our people. So obviously news is getting around. So when Gath gets rid of it and sends it to Ekron, Ekron says, well, we don't want it. We've seen what happens here. We don't want what you guys have. They sent their fort and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors And the cry of the city went up to heaven. So already I want you to notice the way that the Israelites treat the Ark of the Covenant versus the way the Philistines treat the Ark of the Covenant. The Israelites treat it like a magic charm that they can lead into battle and they'll win every time. And and they treat it as if it is subservient to them. The Philistines receive it in that way because they see that's how it's treated by the Israelites. But as soon as they see the power that is associated with it, something that the Israelites ought to have been familiar with, the Ark has been at Shiloh for close to 400 years. For 369 years, the Ark was at Shiloh. The tabernacle was at Shiloh. Israelites should have known about it, but they had no leadership. All their spiritual leaders were, were corrupt and aloof. When the Philistines get a hold of it and they see the power of it, suddenly they are afraid And suddenly they show reverence to the power that is going on. So the Israelites are irreverent and the Philistines are becoming reverent toward the Ark of the Lord. Very interesting turn of events. So let's keep reading chapter six. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means, return him a guilt offering. (laughs) So here you have the Philistines doing guilt offerings to this God, something that Israelites should have been doing. Instead, you have Hophni and Phinehas, the people who should be leading in offerings. They're stealing the offerings. So many times we think of people like the Philistines as the bad guys in the story. (laughs) In this story, they're doing better than who the people who are supposed to be the good guys, the Israelites, right? So you see, not only are they starting to show up reverence, but they're going to, they're going to give it an offering. They're going to give the Lord an offering because uh, apparently he is angry for some reason. Um, so it says, by all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? Now, remember, these are their wise men speaking from their wisdom, from their worldview about the way they understand things. So we should not take any Christian beliefs or anything out of this, but we just are witnessing what the Philistines are deciding to do in their very primitive pagan religion. What kind of guilt offering should we return? They answered five golden tumors and five golden mice. So again, how do you make a sculpture of a tumor? Well, uh, apparently, a lot of the artwork that has been uh, excavated in archaeology digs in the area of the Philistines from the time of the Philistines, they did a lot of artwork that was um, male, it was like phalluses, and so the thinking here might be they're not just making you know a sculpture of a tumor or a sculpture of a hemorrhoid. How do you I don't even want to know how you would do that, but that they are possibly doing sculptures that they are used to doing and decorating it possibly with these tumors. So that's one way that um, they might be making the sculpture of these tumors. Again this is their pagan thinking, their pagan worldview of uh what an offering is and how things should go. So they're making five golden tumors, whatever that may end up being, and five golden mice. This is where we first learned about the mice. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, so in other words, there's five leaders of the Philistines for these five towns. We've talked about Ashdod and uh, Ekron and Gath and some others. And so you've got the leaders of these encampments. Those are the lords of the Philistines. There's five of them, apparently. Uh, for the same plague was on all you and on your lords. So in other words, from young to old, from poor to lord, they were affli- the men were afflicted with tumors, and uh, it goes on to say, so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravaged the land. So apparently these mice or rats or rodents or whatever it is were out there eating the crops. So again, this is why we think possibly fertility god, uh, we know Dagon was a fertility god, so that's how we try to make sense of what this tumors thing means Um, and give glory to the God of Israel. I mean, I mean, this is insane here in verse five, these wise men that clearly have this messed up religious worldview, this messed up pagan understanding of the spirit world, they arrive at, okay, you're going to do these things that are all wrong and from our understanding, but why are you doing them to show glory to the God of Israel? So, the evil Philistines, the enemy Philistines, the pagan Philistines are going to do something to give glory to the God of Israel when Israel has done no such thing. Please see all the irony that's happening here. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods in your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh harden their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, uh, put in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm, he meaning the Lord. But if not, then we shall know that it was, it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence or by chance. Okay. So this is an odd thing that they're doing. What's with all this ceremony with the cart and the milk cows and all this stuff. Okay. So first of all, again, note the Philistines say, get a new cart. In other words, whatever this powerful godlike thing is, it belongs on a cart that nothing has ever been on before. They understand something about purity and holiness simply out of their fear of seeing the power of the Lord, something the Israelites should have maintained in their culture and did not. They had no fear of it. That's why they took it into battle and waved it like a flag. That's why they lost it. But the Philistines, having seen the power of the Lord, they understand it and they say you need a, you need a cart that nothing has ever touched, that nothing has ever been on. Then you need to get two milk cows that have never had a yoke put on them. Now is this about purity? It might be partly about that, but listen to the rest of what happens. They're going to take the calves away from the cows. so they're female cows, they're not males, right? They're female cows, they're milk cows, and they're going to take the calves away. Why are they doing that? Well, think about it. Any of you that have ever been by a farm, some of you listening, I know have cows on your farm. Um, so, if you take a calf away from its mother, where's the mother going to want to go? She's going to hear the bleeding of the calf, and she's going to want to go find her calf. All the time at our farm, we've got guys that have uh, calves, um, cows on our on our farm. The the cows will calve; they'll have a calf. Sometimes the calves die. Sometimes the calves are sold away, and the mother cow will uh, will just moo and moo, will just low for her for her for her baby. Where's where's my baby? She'll just keep calling out for her her children. So the idea here is, if you put some milk cows that have babies on this cart, and this cart goes away from here back the way it came, then you'll know. It's from the Lord because the n- natural proclivity of these cows who have never had a yoke on them before. So they don't know how to, how to lead a cart. They don't know how to, how to walk anywhere. Uh, again, some of you that have cows or maybe you're older, you, you might be aware of this. I, I, I read in, uh, one of the Franklin County historical journals about there during the time of the civil war, all the men were all fighting and it left the women and the children at home. And, um, A man who was a doctor in Franklin County, when he was in his 90s, he wrote about his experience being six years old during the Civil War. So he's writing about this in the 1940s. Isn't that strange to think, wow, somebody who was alive in the 1940s was alive during the Civil War and has memories and remembers. But uh, he was. So he's writing about when he was six years old and he had the task of taking the wagon, which was led by one of their steers, taking the wagon to the mill to buy uh, grain for food and then bringing back. Well, he's six. How does a six-year-old drive uh, a wagon and drive? How does he know where to go? He said it was very easy because he would just hop up in the wagon and he'd sort of smack the whip on the back Of the cow, and she had been so many times, she would just go off and she knew every turn and how how to get there. And she knew when she got there, she was supposed to stop, and she would stop on her own. They'd fill everything up and he'd smack her again and they'd head home. He didn't have to steer anything. So that's why these wise men, in their version of wisdom, they say, get two milk cows that have never had a cart attached to them. That way we know for sure if this heads away from the babies and properly leads this cart off in the direction that the ark came from, then we'll know, we'll know that this was from the Lord and not just a coincidence. Again, while their methods and their worldview and their background are all kinds of messed up, these guys, because of the fear of the Lord, are coming up with more proper ways to treat the ark of the covenant, more proper ways to approach um, finding out who God is than the Israelites are. And even though the narrator is not passing judgment on it, it is by through the storytelling. The narrator is passing judgment through the storytelling. That's why we study the storytelling and get into all these things. So let's continue reading. So the men did so, verse 10, and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and their images of the tumors... And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord, which, again, goes to show, though the Israelites ought to know how to worship the Lord, they don't, because they are offering female cows. They're supposed to offer male cows, right? But they don't. They're, they're offering these females because they don't know what they're doing. Uh <clears throat> And they offer uh, a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites, so there's Levites living in this area. Beth Shemesh Shemesh is one of the Levites' town. Um, Remember, the Levites are all spread out throughout Israel. This is one of the towns where Levites live. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord in the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. So now they're like participating in the weird offering of the Philistines, which, you know, come on, guys, don't do that. And the men of Bethshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistine saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Okay, these guys say, okay, we've seen what we need to see. This was from the Lord. We're going to go back, and we're sorry we ever had anything to do with this golden box. Um. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the Ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the Ark of the Lord and this, this uses the word upon. I think the other translations say in. Basically, it's people looking in the ark. They're, they're opening the top, looking at it, and things like that. He struck 70 men of them, uh, <clears throat> and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Remember where the ark is supposed to be. It's supposed to be in the Holy of Holies, in their tabernacle. It's not supposed to be seen by anybody else. When it travels, it's covered in uh, several layers of things, and so since uh, Bezalel And Oholiab constructed it back in Exodus. The only people who have been able to see it have been the high priests. When it's traveling, it's covered. And when it's not traveling, it's in the Holy of Holies. And now you have people looking at it, possibly looking in it. And God strikes 70 people dead. Uh, Verse 20. The men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. Now they recognize that God is holy. And to whom shall he go up away from us? In other words, wow, this God is really holy. How can we get him out of here? Verse 21. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. So Kiriath-Jerim, who is that? Now we've skipped over in the lessons that we've done. We've skipped over Joshua and Judges and Ruth. But in the book of Joshua, in chapters 9 and 10, I believe, we learn about kiriath Jerem. So Joshua is going on conquest, and he's really, um, you know, taking names. And the people of Gibeon, which is where kiriath Jerem is, the Gibeonites hear about what Joshua and the Israelites are doing, and they don't want any part of it. They don't want to be in the receiving end of that. So they dress up in old clothes. They pretend to be from far away. And they go to Joshua and they make a pact with him. And they say, please don't come and attack us from where we're from. And Joshua does not consult the Lord. No one consults the Lord. They just say, yeah, sure, fine. We're not, we're not here for you because they think they are from far away. Then they learn they're from nearby. And they're part of the land that's supposed to be conquered. And when that is found out, Joshua is furious. And uh, he says, why did you trick us? And they said, well, because we didn't want to be destroyed by you, and we thought this was the only way that we could get that to stop. But whatever you must do to us, you know, go ahead and do. And so what Joshua says is, we're not going to destroy you. I'll rescue you from the Israelites. We won't destroy you. But you will be water bearers and wood woodworkers, woodcutters for the Israelites for the rest of your lives, for the remainder of your days. So when these guys in Beth Shemesh, call on the people of kiriath jerim what they're essentially saying is hey uh let's get some non-israelites as long as people are going to die let's make sure it's not one of us let's get some of those slaves down there that we got let's get some of those people from kiriath jerim let them take care of it let's kind of see what happens over there so again just a very un, un this very dishonorable thing to do just pawn pawn this quote holy god off on somebody else because they don't want to deal with the consequences Uh, So they went to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the Ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the Ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the Ark of the Lord. From the day the Ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord." Hmm. Okay, don't have a whole lot of time left, but I do want to show you some really cool pictures, so let's go back here to the keynote. I have been to Shiloh. These are not my photos, though. In fact, these photos are older from when I went. This is a photograph of Shiloh, so this is where the ark is at the beginning of what we've read tonight. This is where the ark was for 369 years. And you're saying, okay, uh, we're looking at a field or a hill, a hill here. Yeah, so what you're looking at, uh, you've got, of course, the sky there in the top of the screen. And then uh, the hill that is below that, that sort of little mountain range, slopes down into a valley. And that valley is obscured because what is right in front in the foreground, this long, tall grass, is on top of a cliff, basically. And so you've got a hill that comes down and flattens out on this cliff. And then there's a valley between this cliff and the mountain that you can see there just behind it. These are not big mountains. Uh, These are like rolling hills, as we would say in Tennessee, something like that. They're more like the Smoky Mountains than the Rocky Mountains. Lots of rolling uh, hills like this, and uh, each one of them would have been been landmarks for the people of the time. Now, you'll notice in the grass, there are some stone things and some pathways. Uh, Out at the edge of the grass, if you can see right in the middle of the screen there, the edge of the grass, you can see there are some stone wall structures. That is, um, this was just, people knew that this was the area of Shiloh. When these structures were discovered, if you step them off, you will find they are the exact dimensions of the tabernacle. And so it was realized this is where the tabernacle was in Shiloh. And because nothing else has really been here until very recently, other than people farming and, and living by and that sort of thing, the the stones have remained. And in fact, there are some other ruins of some other ancient uh, towns that are uh, just up the hill from what we're looking at here. So uh, just so you can see it just a little better, here's the same image, but now it's got everything sort of laid out for you. So you see north is straight ahead, east is to the right, west is to the left, south is behind us. You'll see the black rectangle indicating the entire uh, temple courtyard. You see the white rectangle inside it showing the uh, tabernacle itself, and you'll see the small square there. You see where it says "Ark sat here," pointing to the small square there, showing exactly where the ark sat. We know that because not only are there stones that show where the the uh, curtain supports would have been, but there's also a stone slab where the ark itself would have sat. That's just big enough for the ark. The circle and the white rectangle to the right. Uh, show where the, uh, excuse me, where the um, the water basin and the altar would have been. And so that kind of gives you a sense of what you're looking at when you look at this picture, and all the stonework and everything that's out there. Here's a shot of it up a little closer, and um, you can see the stone wall that's here and all the stones that have been robbed of it. This is, I think, turned around looking back up the other way, and uh, here it is again now looking off to the west. The north is off to your right. And so you can see the stone wall and um, the stone structures there. So here's a map of the traveling that's done in the story. So you see where Shiloh is there in the top right of the map. And about 17 miles away is Ebenezer. Uh, Ebenezer meaning thus far the Lord has brought us. Again, the irony that is being uh, given to you, the reader, here in the story. They come to the place called Thus Far the Lord Has Brought Us, and this is the place where the Lord leaves them behind, and there's a great defeat. And so you see the little pow symbol there. That is the the site of the battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. Philistines largely living in this green area uh, off to the left. And you see it taken down into uh, the town of Ashdod and Gath and Ekron, and uh, so you're following that path around. And then it's sent off to Beth Shemesh. And you see why they send it there, not because that's where they got it from, but just because that is you know, the nearest Israelite town. Let's just get it out of here. So they send it to the nearest Israelite town and send it to Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh decides that they don't want it, and they send it uh, up to kiriath Jeram, which you can see already is about halfway to what is at this time called jebus which would eventually become Jerusalem. And so there you see the traveling of the Ark. So the Ark was in Philistia for about seven months before they sent it to Beth Shemesh. Uh, They had a very short time before they sent it to kiriath Jerem, and it remained in kiriath Jerem for 20 years. This is the view from Beth Shemesh. From uh, what, what is clearly something man made now. You, you can see that it's a cemented thing with, with stones in it. But it is meant to preserve the location of this great stone that is referred to in Beth Shemesh. And so this is from the area that most people think is where the stone was, where, where the ark sat for a little while in Beth Shemesh, looking back toward, looking back west toward Philistia. And so imagine being out here in these wheat fields and you're working and you look down in the valley and here comes these two oxen with a cart. And on the cart is this golden box that is just gleaming in the sun. Um, And here are some of the uh, ruins of the town. I believe this is, uh, again, Beth Shemesh, showing that there were civilizations here at that time. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, this is from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, It's actually a really fantastic depiction of it. If you go read the description of the Ark of the Covenant in uh, Exodus, they did a very, the prop department did a very good job of it. Here's some more artwork of it showing God enthroned between the cherubim. And again, the light. It's not just, this is the glory. The glory has gone out of Israel, mainly referring to the light. And of course, um, this illustration by Ralph McQuarrie for Raiders of the Lost Ark showing the power of the ark coming out in Uh, Slaying people in battle, uh, an artwork which I have hanging on the wall in my house. And so that's the text. And I just want to take a few more minutes tonight just to talk about one concept from this story. If you, those of you who are with us for the Genesis series, you'll remember the main point of Genesis, the turning point in Genesis, comes with the idea of redemption, forgiveness, repentance when Judah takes responsibility for his sin and tries to make it right, when he repents, when he tries to turn things around, that's the key to understanding the story of the book of Genesis. That's the key to understanding what Jesus is about and what most of the Bible is about, right? It's about light being separated from darkness, light being made more abundant, and darkness sent scattering. Well, if you've ever been lost, you know that you don't just instantly get back on track. That if you've wandered far away from where you're supposed to be, you have to turn around and then you have to come back to where you're supposed to go. If you are following someone who is on the move, okay, and you go off in your own direction and they keep moving, if you just turn around and go back to where you were, you'll still be way off because you'll be so far behind them. And so if you're way out lost somewhere, you must turn and go toward the person that you are following in order to reconnect with them. So when we talk about the idea of repentance, many of us who have been in church know that the word repent means to turn around, but that's literally what it means. It means to turn back, to turn away, to go back the way that you came. And so I want to show you once again, this map from the keynote, and I want you to see what the Ark of the Covenant is doing. It comes from Shiloh and what does it do? It turns around and it goes back. The Ark of the Covenant is doing something foreshadowing what Israel must do, and that is repent. That's a weird concept for us to think that God repented, right? It doesn't mean that God sinned and took it back. That's not what it means. It means in the very literal sense, he turned around and went back. He did it geographically. He did it very literally. He left Israel and came back, right? Did did God abandon Israel? Well, no, no. (laughs) <laughs> they they kicked him out. They evicted him. They took him out of his house, threw him out and lost him in a wager that they were never instructed to make. And this isn't the story of the people of God. This is the story of God. And so we see what God does. We see uh, that Israel won't show who God is, but that God shows himself to the Philistines and they respond out of fear and reverence and they return God to where he belongs. And so God turns back. God repents in a very literal sense. Which sets us up for what must happen in this story with the nation of Israel. They must repent. They must turn around. They must go back in their hearts, in their spirituality, in their worship. Very quickly, I just want to, I'm not going to read all these scriptures, though I will have them on the screen briefly. I just want to talk about what repentance is and what it isn't. First of all, repentance isn't just fixing stuff, okay? And here's a scripture from Isaiah where it says, You will be delivered by returning and resting. Your strength will like in quiet confidence, but you're not willing. So this is about uh, going back to be with the Lord. It's not just about fixing things that you did wrong. Okay. God doesn't fix things. One of my favorite Ravi Zacharias quotes, we've uh, talked about Brother Ravi uh, a couple nights ago because he is uh, has been very ill. But uh, Brother Ravi, uh, one of my favorite quotes of his, and I'm sure he's quoting people from before him, he says, God doesn't make Bad men good. He makes dead men live. God doesn't fix things. He makes them new. That's what Jesus says when he's on the throne in Revelation. Behold, I make all things new. So this scripture from Isaiah chapter 30, it's not about fixing stuff. It's about relationship with God. That's what repentance is. Repentance is about turning back to the Lord. And here's this prayer that Paul has in Ephesians 3 that the Ephesian church would know God's great love. Repentance isn't a one time event. It is a lifestyle. So yes, you must decide to repent at the time that you become a Christian. And that does seem like a one-time milestone event. But you must continually, every day, develop a repentance, a lifestyle repentance. Because just as someone who's lost in the woods isn't immediately back on track, you have to continue turning back like a ship lost at sea. You must continually cut your sails back to uh, where the Lord is headed. How do we do that? We do that through discipleship. And you see 2 Timothy Two, two here as we've discussed many times, talking about discipleship. What is the goal of repentance? The goal is Jesus. And this is a section from John eight, when they're asking, uh, who, who, "Who exactly are you, Mister Jesus?" And he says, uh, "I'm exactly what I've been telling you from the beginning." And he uh, goes on to say at the very end, "The one who sent me, uh, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do." what pleases him. And this is what we're trying to do is we're trying to get to Jesus and we're trying to also do what always pleases the Father. Repentance isn't done alone. This large section from James chapter five, right in the middle, it says um, about talking about sins, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And this whole section talks about corporate worship and what we should do when we come together and pray for each other and singing with each other and how important that is. And repentance is not Stopping you from doing fun things. Repentance is good news. It is freedom from the traps in which you live. In Proverbs, don't despise the Lord's instructions. In Romans, there is now no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ because you've been set free. And uh, the first words of the gospel, Matthew 4:17, Jesus preaches, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. I'll put all of these here on the screen together. So that you can look at them, you can take a screenshot, uh, you can come back and jot these down and, and go back and read them one at a time. But I want you to see the story that's been set up here. We're now really at the end of Act 1 of the book of Samuel. God has left Israel. The light has gone out in Israel. And so the question the question that's left is, will Israel repent and restore their relationship with God. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.